Well, if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at the end of chapter 11. That's verses 20 through 30. And the text is also there on the next page of the bulletin. Um, a pretty simple, straightforward message uh, this morning, I think. Uh, Jesus is not a condemning jerk. I mean, that's basically what I've got to say. That's basically what this passage is about. Uh, Jesus is not a condemning jerk. He invites us all to come to him, not as to a threatening, terrifying tyrant, but as to a good and humble and merciful Lord. He calls us to entrust ourselves to him, and he promises to give us the only true rest and relief and freedom from condemnation that can be found in this world. So let's hear Uh, what he has to say to us. Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you are good, and your word is good. And we pray that you would give us new hearts to hear your word and believe it. Holy Spirit, be with us in our hearing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, you, uh, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So let's be honest. uh, You know, I started off by saying that Jesus is not a condemning jerk. But then I started reading this passage uh, where he proclaims the coming day of judgment and denounces all the cities uh, for the, their lack of repentance. And we experience some confusion there. We, we experience some cognitive dissonance there. You know, how can Jesus at one moment pronounce these awful woes upon people, real people, and in the very next moment speak so beautifully about divine grace and mercy? I mean, these could be the rantings of a crazy person talking like that. So what do we do with this? How can we trust Jesus when he talks like this? Um, Look, Jesus does talk about condemnation. He he does talk about judgment quite a bit, actually. But he says very clearly that he did not come into the world to condemn, 
us, but to save us, to save sinners from, from condemnation. You can read about that really all over the place in the Gospels, but especially in John chapter 3. Um, read about that there. Everywhere, everywhere the Bible exalts the steadfast love of God which endures forever. From the beginning to the, uh, of time to the end of time and beyond, at each and every moment unceasingly, unwaveringly, the love of God is eternal. The love of God determines all our reality. So what's with this denouncing, Jesus? What's, what's with the promise of unbearable, intolerable, unimaginable judgment? Uh, we have to trust that even words like these reveal God's eternal love, God's steadfast love. And I think it's not so hard to imagine it uh, in some sense, at least if you actually try, if you actually try, give God's love a chance to determine all your rea- reality, even passages like this. Uh, <clears throat> when you see someone that you love living in self-destructive ways, it evokes the anger of your love. When you would alert someone to the dangers that lie ahead of them if they refuse to stop and turn away from their self-destructive ways, that warning is a good expression of your love. So it's the love of God that finds expression in Jesus' warning of judgment here. You can hear the pity in what he says. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. So when Jesus says, woe, I mean, maybe it's easy for us to hear him saying, you know, like spitefully, burn in hell, sinners. Woe, woe to you. But no, he's, when he's saying woe, he's saying, alas, how dreadful, how miserable for you. Woe is a word of compassionate sadness. Woe is a word of grief. Woe is a word of pity. Jesus pities sinners who are rushing headlong into unbearable judgment. He came to those cities in Galilee These are the cities that he's talking to, doing the wonderful works of God. He's healing, he's delivering, uh, he's blessing people, he's giving uh, life, restoring people to life even. Matthew's recorded many astonishing things that Jesus has done among these places that we've looked at over the last several months as we've gone through Matthew's gospel. All of his mighty works, as we've considered them, all of them, uh, were done to reveal God, to make him known, so that God... They could know God was with them. God was for them. All these mighty works are done to save them from life apart from him. He wants to be with them. And none of that made a dent in their hard hearts at all. So he said, uh, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Tyre and Sidon. uh, These are cities that show up uh, throughout the scriptures several times. They're, They're Phoenician cities. So they're just north of uh, what at the time was sort of Israel's territory. Uh, it's what it, it, it's uh, present-day Lebanon is where these cities are, Tyre and Sidon. And they'd been places of idolatry, arrogant idolatry, and affluence, sort of oppressive affluence. So these Gentile cities, non-Jewish Gentile cities, had conspired against God's people, and they had oppressed God's people historically, Uh, The evil queen Jezebel, we talked about her just briefly last week. Um, You know, she's the one who opposed the prophet Elijah and threatened him with death. Uh, Jezebel was from Sidon. She's from one of these cities. 
The Hebrew prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah had foretold that God would come against these cities, Tyre and Sidon. God would come against them in judgment. And the Jews, God's people, would have welcomed the downfall of these cities. Uh, They would have uh, really thought, yeah, Tyre and Sidon deserve to be judged. Yeah. And those cities fell. They were conquered. They were wiped out, really really just down to rubble by foreign empires that were invading them and conquering them. And so uh, that's the story of Tyre and Sidon. They were wiped out by God's judgment. Sodom is a city written of in Genesis 19. Uh, It was utterly overthrown by God himself. And not just the city, but the surrounding area uh, with fire and sulfur that was rained down from heaven for their wicked and uh, inhospitable immorality. So these cities, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, they all would have been despised by the Jews for the great evils that they had committed against the Lord and against his people. And the Jews, really, in Jesus' day, the Jews that Jesus is interacting with largely thought themselves better than those Gentiles. They're more favored by God. And they held those cities in contempt. But Jesus was saying, you know, your real contempt is for God. You're more entrenched in your contempt of God than those Gentiles are that you despise the most. You hate God more than they do. If those wicked cities had seen my mighty works, they would have repented long ago with you know, sackcloth and ashes. That's a way of uh, sort of saying this genuine, heartfelt, desperate, true repentance. Whereas you have seen my mighty works, yet you've not repented and turned to me for salvation and for life with God. Therefore, you'll be more miserable than they are in the judgment. Because your rejection of me has been more terrible and more complete. <clears throat> so his warning is severe. But ultimately, it's the warning of love. His warning is a merciful invitation to repent. So uh, Jesus is, uh, is like Jonah, but better. Jesus is the better Jonah. Remember Jonah. Um, we've looked at the, the story of Jonah uh, several times over the years. And Bill read some of it uh, from our Old Testament reading this morning. Jonah was the prophet that God sent to Nineveh, the Gentile city, the wicked, oppressive city that was the enemies of God's people. Jonah was sent there because their evil had come up before the Lord. And Jonah proclaimed, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All he had for them was a message warning them of coming judgment. That's all he said. Jonah himself had been reluctant to go. The first half of the book is about that. Uh, Really, the whole book is about that, but uh, the first half chronicles the story of his uh, absolute rebellion and refusal to go. Um, He'd been reluctant to go because he hated these people. He hated the Ninevites as the enemies of God's people, and he knew, he knew that ultimately he was being sent on a mission of mercy, even though he's got a message of judgment. He knew that this would result in God being gracious and merciful to the people of Nineveh, that it would result in God sparing them from the vindictive kind of judgment that Jonah really felt they deserved. And this simple message of judgment that Jonah reluctantly proclaimed did result in their repentance. And God had compassion on the people of that city. 
And Jonah hated the mercy of God for it. He hated the mercy of, he hated the mercy of God when he proclaimed God's message of, message of judgment. Jesus loves the mercy of God when he proclaims the message of God's judgment. He shares the compassion of God towards sinners. He is the compassionate God. He is the grace and mercy of the God of love in the flesh when he proclaims a message of judgment. He comes with love's warning. It's love's invitation to repentance. He calls us to turn away from the way of self-destruction and misery, to turn away from the way of woe, to turn to him. That's what repentance means. Repentance means nothing other than turning to Jesus. It means nothing other than turning to Jesus. If you think of repentance just in terms of behavior, like stopping bad behaviors and starting good ones, you're not thinking of repentance in the way the Bible talks about it, the way Jesus talks about it. Jesus says, come to me. You haven't been doing that. That's what needs to change. Come to me. Repentance means you turn to Jesus as the the new center of your universe. You reorient yourself on him. You set your mind on him, your attention on him. You entrust yourself to him in everything. And yes, that will imply and result in some behavioral changes, but the true essence of repentance is simply responding to his gracious invitation, come to me. Come to me. And it's stunning that anyone would claim that kind of place in our lives, that anyone would say and insist and command, you must turn to me. You must come to me. I must be the the central reference point of all your reality. And this is what God alone can say. And he says that in the Old Testament. He says uh, in Isaiah 45, turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There's no place else you can go. You come to me. Only God can claim that central and ultimate place in our lives. And that's the very place that Jesus claims for himself. So let's uh, look then at the second paragraph of our passage where Jesus says, come to me. It is, uh, unfortunately, I think, separated from the previous paragraph in most uh, Bibles, probably by a new paragraph header, a new title, right, that sort of indicates a different subject. Um, But there's a definite explicit connection being made when Matthew writes in verse 25 there. You see it at the beginning of that second paragraph. At that time, Jesus declared, and then goes on to, to say what he has to say. The first paragraph reveals the problem of judgment. The first paragraph reveals the problem of judgment for those who have not repented. And the second paragraph reveals the solution to that problem in God's free grace. And it reveals the true repentance that will mean our salvation. And that repentance is coming to Jesus, which means coming to the one true God himself. So Jesus openly celebrates here at the beginning of the second paragraph, the free and sovereign grace of God the Father as the answer to the problem of judgment. Uh, So it's like Matthew's saying here, um, you know, at that time, Jesus says, Jesus declares, on the occasion 
of issuing his warnings of judgment. Taking the opportunity now to address this issue of judgment, Jesus declared. And in fact, literally, it says, it says Jesus answered. Jesus answered the problem of judgment, saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will or your goodwill. So the wise and understanding are those who are um, not just smart people. That's not, the, that's not what he's saying. Those, those who are presumptuously wise in their own eyes. Those who can judge for themselves when it comes to important matters, divine matters. Those who know better than to need the forgiveness that Jesus offered. Or those who are proud and self-sufficient who imagine that they can even ascend to heaven by means of their own knowledge and judgment. Right? So they rely on their own judgment rather than submitting to God's judgment. Which has always been the fundamental problem with humanity ever since the first sin. So these wise and understanding do not know God. They cannot know God as he truly is. He actually won't allow it. In an act of judgment upon our judgment, God has hidden himself from the haughty and from the arrogant, and he has revealed himself to little children, to the humble, to the dependent ones who know their need of his mercy, who forsake even themselves, even their own judgment, who do submit themselves to God's good judgment, who entrust themselves to God's good judgment. It is the gracious will, the good will of God, to reveal himself to the lowly. And this is a clear demonstration of the absolute freedom of God's grace. He is not bound or beholden to us in any way. He does not owe forgiveness to sinners or grace or love to sinners. His salvation is not a repayment for our goodness, our righteousness. He doesn't love us because we're so great. He loves us freely in spite of who we are. He, he gives himself to us freely. So Jesus reveals this inconceivable free grace of God and he reveals it to us with a unique authority. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So salvation is a matter of coming to know God and to, to relate to God as he truly is. And there's, there's only one who can reveal, who can truly reveal God to us. And that's God himself. Only God knows God and can make God known. In Trinitarian terms, which is how Jesus is talking here, only the Father knows the Son and only the Son knows the Father. The Father and the Son enjoy this unique mutual knowing as divine equals in the Spirit. And the knowing that we are granted is just that. It's a gift that's granted to us freely by him. It's the Son's divine right to freely and graciously make the Father known to whomever he chooses. And Jesus is saying he's the one with that right. He's the one, he's the only one who truly makes God known to us for salvation. He is claiming the unique knowledge of God. All things have been given to me. 
knowledge, authority, the right. He has the unique knowledge of God, the unique authority of God, the unique right of God himself because he is God. Jesus is God. He's the Lord. He is the eternal son of the Father. And you need to know this. This is not just, you know, Eric having a fun time with theology up here. You need to know this so that you know who it is you're coming to when you repent. When you turn to Jesus, who says, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Why do we need rest for our souls? It's because we have this problem with God's judgment. We've sought to escape that which is inescapable. That's a distressing place to be. We've rejected the judgment of God. We've relied on our own judgment for life. That's a distressing place to be. That's an impossible place to be. But rejecting God's judgment doesn't make it go away. It just means you've set yourself against the inevitable, against the goodness of God and the judgment of God. And so you need relief from the unavoidable judgment of God. You need relief from your own bad judgment. That, that relief can only be found in submitting to God's good judgment. You'll only find that relief, that rest in God as you repent and turn to Jesus. You can truly find rest and relief in Jesus because when you come to Jesus, you're coming to the one true God who is gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus claims divine knowledge, claims divine authority to reveal God to us for our salvation. Jesus reveals himself then His very heart, the core of who he is. And he says there's nothing more true of his nature. There's nothing more true of his character. There's nothing more true of his disposition towards sinners than that he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sinners. He is in the very foundation of who he is, gentle and lowly. And that is to say, he's relatable to those who also are lowly. He regards the lowly. He dwells with the lowly because he himself is lowly. And when Jesus claims divinity and then defines himself as gentle and lowly, he's saying that God is gentle and lowly. That God is humble, that God is meek, that God is approachable. That God, this is the heart of God truly is merciful. And there's nothing deeper in God than that. And that's what you get with the biblical Christian teaching that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, being of one substance with the Father. So uh, T.F. Torrance puts it this way. I've got this in the bulletin there, uh, down at the bottom of the page, uh, quote from him God is not one thing in himself and another thing in Jesus Christ. What God is toward us in Jesus, he is inherently and eternally in himself. There's no God behind the back of Jesus Christ, but only this God whose face we see in the face of the Lord Jesus. God really is like Jesus. For there is no other God than he who became man in Jesus. And he whom God affirms himself to be and always will be in Jesus. Coming to Jesus is rest for your souls because you learn from him that, in fact, you're coming to God when you're coming to him. 
Knowing that Jesus is God brings rest for your souls because it means that God really does love like Jesus loves. So Karl Barth has another of the quotes, I think, that I've printed there. He says, in a little bit more technical language, Jesus is the unconditionally omnipotent executor of God upon earth. Jesus acts on God's behalf. And we may trust that Jesus acts on God's behalf, that he is authorized to represent God's very heart to us because he is God. Jesus is God loving us. Jesus is God forgiving us. Jesus is God saving us from the terrible problem of judgment that we deserve. Because not only does Jesus truly and perfectly represent God to us, he truly and perfectly represents us to God. Jesus does the one thing that sinful human beings would never do. As a human being, he does the one thing that we would never do. He submits himself to God's judgment with thanksgiving. He joyfully entrusts himself to his Father's goodwill. That's what he's done here in this passage. And especially at the cross, Jesus submitted himself to God's righteous judgment in our place in order to grant us rest and relief from God's judgment, in order to be gentle and merciful to us, to spare us the same pain we've caused him. So Jesus reveals a God who delights to make himself known to us in his grace. Jesus reveals that God is willing to unite himself to our, our human nature forever. Jesus reveals that God is willing to humble himself, to become a slave, despised and rejected. Jesus reveals that God is willing even to suffer the humiliating and terrible death that sinners deserve in order to grant us a rest in his presence that we could never deserve. Jesus reveals a God of love, a God of good judgment, a God whose love moved him to eat and drink judgment on our behalf because he is gentle and lowly in heart. Being a Christian means repentance, which means coming to Jesus, who is not a condemning jerk. It means coming to Jesus to learn of the Father from him. It means coming to Jesus to receive the gift of his own relationship with the Father always coming to Jesus for that. It means coming to Jesus to cease from all strivings to escape the inescapable judgment of God, to submit to God's judgment of Jesus on our behalf, coming to Jesus to find relief from the crushing guilt of our sin and fear of condemnation, coming to Jesus to find a yoke that, unlike other yokes, sets you free. Coming to Jesus to find a burden that, unlike other burdens, actually lightens your soul. Jesus invites you because he has compassion for you, and there's nothing deeper in God than that, nothing more true about God than his heart of compassion, even towards sinners like you. So come to Jesus and find rest for your souls in his mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Son is the perfect image of you, the glorious revelation of your being, your heart, your love. We thank you that we can truly know you and relate to you through him. 
We thank you for sending him to live and die for us, to suffer your judgment against our sin, to set us free from, from your judgment, to embrace your judgment, to set us free to embrace your good judgment in all things. Lord Jesus, we are at your mercy, and we must confess that there is no better place to be than at your mercy, because you are merciful. So we pray that you'd have mercy on us. Give our souls rest, not in escaping the inescapable judgment of God, but in embracing God's judgment through you, in submitting to it as you have done. Holy Spirit, help us to repent, to always be turning to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus for our life with God. Help us to believe what really has always been incredible to sinners, that God has freely loved us. Grant us relief and refreshing for our souls in your presence as you fix our eyes on Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.